back to training despite the coronavirus lockdown. I've asked them to come to me with a plan for how we switch that back on in a responsible, socially distanced way, but that allows that capability to be maintained. Who could be trying to hack into vaccine labs? There is a really vicious battle of narratives going on between China and Russia on the one hand and the United States and other Western countries on the other. And remembering VE Day 75 years on. Think about the service and sacrifice that has gone on before and to continue to be grateful for the way that people are serving us today. I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP. Ministers are again reviewing the UK's lockdown, deciding when and by how much to ease the restrictions in place since March. But while Boris Johnson has warned any changes will be gradual, those in charge of the military say they can't afford to wait. So within days, infantry training is to resume at Catterick, with Sandhurst and others to follow soon. It's essential, according to Minister for the Armed Forces, James Heapy. The reason that it has to continue is not because it's a capability that is required right Right now, those sorts of capabilities like the nuclear deterrent or our, or our rapid response aircraft that go up and defend our airspace, they've never stopped and we've continued to generate for those. But there are things that we know that we're going to need in six months' time and a year's time that if we're not training for them now, we cannot hope to have that capability which we need to keep our nation safe next year. And that is all the justification that I need as the Minister for the Armed Forces to say, well, that training has to now get going again, irrespective of what the lockdown does. If you have no officer inflow into the three services, if you have no soldier, sailor, airman, airwoman inflow into the three services, then that brings gaps in key units in six months, a year's time that we can't afford to have. So Sandhurst will go back to training in a week or so's time. Cranwell never stopped. Dartmouth has finished the term it was on, will now miss a term and then have a large term in September. HMS Rally has continued to train. So too has the RAF basic training facilities. But the Infantry Training Centre in Catterick had stopped altogether. It will start training again next week in order that those troops are flowing through. So I have asked the Chief of the General Staff, Chief of the Air Staff, the First Sea Lord, to look across all of the sort of training activity um, that isn't immediately operational right now, but does have an impact on operational capability in the near future. And I've asked them to come to me with a plan for how we switch that back on in a responsible, socially distanced way, but that allows that capability to be maintained and the force, therefore, to be resilient for what comes ahead. Armed Forces Minister James Heapy there. He says he wants training to resume in a responsible, socially distanced way. But how do you do that? Well, Lieutenant General Sir Andrew Gregory is now the head of SAFA, the Armed Forces Charity. But before that, he was Deputy Chief of the Defence Staff. He spoke to our reporter, Sean Grescheck. I'm sure the military have considered very carefully their various options before starting training to make sure both instructors and trainees are safe and that individuals don't take any disease out into the wider community. Uh, Obviously, things will be different. They will have to ensure they can exercise reasonable social distancing. And if they can't, then they will probably have to keep people in some sort of isolation and separate them from their families 
to protect the wider community. In terms of training colleges, do you think that they've got enough classroom space to ensure students remain a far enough distance apart? You know, little problems like that are going to be a real issue, aren't they? I think there are going to be lots of practical issues that people will have to think through, just as schools are thinking through how, when they start to return, they will manage classes because you won't be able to get 30 pupils, for example, into a small classroom. So whether you have split classes, whether you have some online, uh, some physically present, I'm sure all these options are being carefully looked at. I think the important thing to note is that the military, like any other organisation, will have done a very careful risk assessment before making this judgment and to make sure that they are being as safe and effective as possible. Patrick Valance has told MPs that reducing the two metre distance to one metre makes it more than 10 times more likely COVID-19 will be transmitted. Which training procedures will struggle to be taught at that two metre distance apart? And are students being put at risk potentially by going back ahead of lockdown being eased nationwide? I'm sure... As I say again, the military who are working very closely with the government are taking all the proper advice and will have decided how best to manage uh, this important aspect of their life safely and properly. My son is serving in a regiment. Uh, They were locked in for two weeks prior to helping build the Harrogate Nightingale Hospital. Those are the sort of steps I'm sure the military are thinking of. That was Lieutenant General Sir Andrew Gregory speaking to Sean Grescheck. Well, joining me is BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, that difficult balancing act we're facing in every aspect of our lives, getting back to work without sparking a rise in infections, is it exactly the same for the military as everyone else? Well, not quite, in as much that the military think of it as a block. They think of it as an exercise, and they've already thought it through. We've got to be careful what we're talking about when we're talking about training. Uh, training isn't necessarily basic training, but you can send people off to Sandhurst and they're doing basic training, and it's taught training. But other training is, in fact, uh, exercising people who are already trained and taking them to further station and keeping up their, their capabilities. What about the Navy? You stick 400 people in a ship, and it's a pretty closed-down society. And therefore, you, you start thinking which parts of your organisation within, within all three services are clean. Do you think the forces are well schooled in making sure and assessing those risks, perhaps better than civilian authorities in the civilian world? I mean, obviously, everyone's going to want to make sure they're kept safe. They don't have to do everything. You think ahead to, let's say, I'm just guessing, let's say to September, when the risk may not be higher you can reduce or or you can resume some sort of training. And the other thing is that you can catch up with training. You may have to extend training periods. Well, one reason cited for restarting military training is the fear of capability gaps several months down the line, a danger that could be exploited by hostile states, some of whom may already be seeking to exploit weaknesses. This week, we've had a warning of hostile actors targeting organisations involved in the coronavirus response. The Foreign Secretary called it completely unacceptable and potentially life-threatening. So who's behind it? Professor Michael Clark is a former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute. What is new about these present warnings is that the um, National Cyber Security Centre is making it very clear that they, they say that there are state-based attacks. The general view is that this is potentially Russia and Iran 
possibly China, but nobody's actually putting the finger on China, who is likely to try to hack into our uh, vaccine laboratories are you know, hackers, criminals, but now states who are, who are pursuing a really violent battle of the narratives over the whole COVID-19 crisis. So is the motivation to cause as much trouble as possible, or as you say, if they're trying to get access to, for example, labs that are working on a vaccine, is it to try and scoop them on the vaccine? Almost certainly, yes. There's a lot of vaccine diplomacy developing now. It's become a sort of great power struggle. Everyone is looking for the breakthroughs, and the the worse the economic crisis gets, the more valuable any of these breakthroughs are likely to be. And there is a really vicious battle of narratives going on between China and Russia on the one hand and the United States and other Western countries on the other. And the sense that the the Chinese in particular need to get off the hook. Everybody knows that it started in China and that the Chinese made it worse by their behavior. That's common knowledge. But they are trying to get ahead of it by saying, well, we didn't start it, but look, we've got the answer in any case. It's become highly political as to which country can say that their laboratories have found the vaccine, which not not only exists, but can be reproduced and can be rolled out to the to the world community inside the next year or 18 months. That's a big diplomatic gain for anyone who can do that. At a time when tensions between nations are already very high and countries are dealing with the coronavirus outbreaks inside their own borders, China is trying to counter a narrative of blame for the outbreak. Donald Trump thinking about his re-election campaign. So something like this could escalate very quickly. Yes, we are entering into, as I say, a new domain of great power politics, the the vaccine diplomacy, the COVID diplomacy. And and lots of things are happening now. World politics is is in a very volatile state because one is the public health effect, which make people around the world very, very angry. But then right on the back of that is the economic disruption, which COVID is causing, the lockdowns, the damage being done by the lockdowns. There are lots of big political developments taking place because of the uh, the outbreak of, of coronavirus. And th- they are working their way through. Nobody quite knows what's happening. States are, are making huge decisions very quickly. They're putting themselves in, in hock. They're taking on huge amounts of debt. They don't know how they're going to pay it back. And the things that are changing in world politics are changing in ways that nobody can predict. So the effect will be to make the world far more volatile for the next 18 months or two years, whatever then happens after that. That was Professor Michael Clark speaking to Paul Osborne. Uh, Christopher, as if we didn't have enough to worry about, now someone's trying to steal top security work on a vaccine. Well, we're doing it all the time, aren't we? I mean, the, the United Kingdom is doing it through GCHQ, through intelligence people trying to find out what other people are doing. Take what's happening in China. That has changed quite a lot because of what started with this virus. People are coming to the fore. Other people are actually sort of defending their own issues. And therefore, they've got to know what's going on throughout the world and where they can get at it. And Michael Clark was talking about this febrile environment where no one knows what's going to happen next. It really wouldn't take much to blow things up, would it? Blow it up to what, I wonder. We're used to talking about uh, a crisis really becoming an event. So, Christopher, do you think then, in the light of this pandemic, the world is not a more dangerous place in terms of geopolitics? I don't think it is. I mean, there are are changes. There is a relationship between Australia, for example, and and China, which will have uh, commercial and political consequences probably for the next 20, 25 years. That's what the Australians think anyway. It's not going to heat up into sort of a fighting war. Once this thing starts to fade away just a bit, the, the superpowers 
the great powers like China and America, the other powers like the EU will want to get back into doing deals, into working the art of diplomacy rather than the art of aggression. Christmas Day with us. Now, as the pandemic took hold, the government turned to the military to fulfil key roles and many veterans stepped up too. But what sort of impact is that having on their own mental health? All Call Signs is a military charity that won an award last year for its work. It offers a lot of its support online, so has been able to keep operating. Dan Arnold is from the charity and he told Tim Cooper he's worried some veterans are really struggling with the lockdown. There's been quite a large upsurge. We were looking at our data the other day and our traffic has gone up by 60% per week. So typically we'd normally see around 50 new people reach out using our chat now function. Uh, That's spiked all the way up to 120, 130 a week of new individuals that are reaching out from a range of different things, just trying to get support while being isolated. Individuals might live at home, um, relationships might be breaking down right the way up to people who feel that they're on the edge of kind of a spiral and possibly a mental health crisis. And the fear, I guess, is that the longer this goes on, the more it potentially will increase. Yeah, I guess that's a double-edged sword, isn't it? The more people kind of embrace their wellness and and, and looking at their mental health and trying to manage it and really, really working on it and giving a big proportion of your time to help because things are very different. And I know it's said a lot, um, this is an unprecedented time. No, No one in our lifetime has seen anything like this or in the NHS's lifetime. So it's really important to work on your mental health now um, because, yeah, it, it is fair to say that the longer this goes on, the more it could affect people. Tell me a little about your experiences, particularly with veterans who are now key workers. We have seen an upsurge in individuals who have been in the armed forces and are now working in key worker roles, uh, whether that's frontline NHS, postmen, delivery drivers, who are really just burnt out with the current levels. Um, We're working really closely with other organisations like NHS Tills, um, the police, uh, various different organisations to help and support those people. And I'm glad to say that we've brought around successful results in every instance at the moment. But yeah, we're definitely seeing the data come through that this is taking its toll on key workers that have been in the armed forces. That was Dan Arnold from the charity All Call Signs talking to Tim Cooper. This is Zitrap. While the pandemic dominates the news agenda, this week we mark an important anniversary. The 8th of May 1945 was VE Day, the end of the war in Europe. The coronavirus has forced the cancellation of planned large-scale events for the 75th anniversary, but Bob Gamble from the Royal British Legion says instead millions will be invited to join three key moments on the day from their own homes. The 11 o'clock remembrance moment. We simply can't go into uh, any celebratory aspect of VE 75 without first remembering all those that were lost in World War II. At three o'clock, remembering the the, the Churchill speech of 1945 uh, from the balcony of the health ministry, announcing the fact that uh, peace had been achieved in Europe. And then at nine o'clock at night in 1945, George VI spoke to the nation whilst families huddled around radio, wireless sets, and we'll be recreating that moment and are very fortunate that Her Majesty the Queen will play a role in that. Well, despite the lockdown, there are still ways for families to remember their own wartime stories and to tell others as well. Dr George Hay is the official historian at the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, which has launched a digital wall of remembrance. This isn't exclusively about those who are lost. It's also about sharing personal memories, personal stories, family stories. 
we want um, the wall to allow people to remember and to celebrate and to look back on that event but also to reflect on those who perhaps weren't lucky enough to share that piece or to see it come to fruition. You can access it or post to it either using our website, so www.cwgc.org, where you'll be able to upload those memories. Or if you're using social media, you can use the hashtag share your tribute. Well, we may be marking the anniversary from our homes, but that doesn't mean the significance of VE Day will be ignored. The commander of British Forces Cyprus, Major General Rob Thompson, has been telling our reporter Anthony Ballard the coronavirus gives this generation an opportunity to think a little more about the wartime generation. It would be really nice to be able to have uh, a good old shindig in the street, a classic British street party, but that is not going to be possible this year. But what I think that does do to us is maybe to make us more reflective, to maybe just to pause, sat somewhere quietly to think about the service and sacrifice that has gone on before and to continue to be grateful for the way that people are serving us today, the National Health Service back home, the way our medics are serving us here in British Forces Cyprus. So I think as we look back, we should look forward. But let's also be optimistic. We will get through this together and there will be a time when we can come together and we can reinvigorate those street parties and we can dance again. People do forget when they think of war, they think of trauma and disaster, but there is a certain amount of relief and joy when it concludes. You're absolutely right. There was a victory in 1945 and it was a victory over an evil ideology which we must never ever forget. And it's important that we understand that sometimes Western liberal democracies need to stand up against those evil ideologies. So people paid a heavy price. And therefore, at the end of the war, it was right that people came together and saluted the service and honoured the sacrifice. And if that means a party, then that's a good thing. We're sitting here in Cyprus. Cypriots, they played a major role. Yeah, so I think too often we forget the role of Cyprus during the Second World War. It was an important air base, just as Akrotiri is today. It was an air bridge into other operational theatres. 30,000 men volunteered to serve in the Cyprus Regiment. 1,000 women volunteered to serve in the Auxiliary Territorial Service or in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. 600 Cypriots were killed. They are buried today in 56 cemeteries across 16 nations. So as we salute the service and sacrifice in the UK, so we should salute and honour the service and sacrifice of our Cypriot ally. Do you have somebody particular in mind that stands out from VE Day, don't you? We all have heroes. Um, my hero is a wonderful officer called Hugh Dormer. He was an officer in the Irish Guards who served in the Special Operations Executive in the Second World War. He jumped into France twice, walked over the Pyrenees twice, and was tragically killed in Operation Goodwood in Normandy in 1944. And his diaries are a very moving tribute to what he achieved, to the men he commanded. And in the book at the end, it says that his guardsmen came to the funeral and they laid flowers on his tomb and they came and they loved him because they knew that he loved them first. That was Major General Rob Thompson talking to Anthony Ballard. Uh, Christopher Lee, um, important to have those personal stories, isn't it, to remember the Second World War as we move away from it. And it's also quite easy to forget things. The largest group of people killed were, in fact, merchant seamen. In 1939, when the war started, Britain needed 20 ships every single day to get into British ports just to keep the United Kingdom going, never mind the war effort, just to keep them going. And this became the thing called the Battle of the Atlantic, which went on until 1943. In that time, 30,000 or maybe more merchant sailors 
without any medals, without any ranks, without any ratings, were killed. At one point, something like 15, 1600 ships were being lost in a year. I think we might remember sometimes this sort of thing, the fact that these are the heroes, 30,000 unspoken, so unspoken that the British people themselves did not realize that these men, mainly men, were doing this sort of job of, of taking oil tankers, of food ships, of weapons supply ships across the Atlantic and back. And they used to get kicked out of pubs. Why don't you get a uniform? Why don't you go and join up? Average pay, 90 pounds a year. But these are the heroes also, very much the sort of heroes that General Rob was talking about there in, uh, in, in Cyprus. In Germany, VE Day is called Stunde Null, Hour Zero, the start of a new era and a break with the past. But after almost six years of war, Germans faced a new battle to survive in a devastated country. Rob Olver has been hearing from one of Germany's leading military historians. Germans should not be taken as victims of the war. They were those who conducted the war. Dr. Jürg Hillmann is both a Navy captain and Germany's Armed Forces senior historian. In May 1945, he says, the nation that had started the war was the last to know it had finished. Most people inside Germany did not realize that there was this unconditional surrender. Fights were ongoing after the 8th of May. We had a lot of surrenders already before the 8th of May. And we had a final government under Karl Dönitz until the 23rd of May, 1945. And we had some soldiers in the north of Norway who didn't realize until the end of May that the end of the war was conducted already. Most of the houses were destroyed. The people didn't really know where to stay. They were starving. They started eating dead horses. They also had an uncertainty regarding their husbands, their fathers, sometimes their sons, because they were at war. They didn't know where they were. And so most of the pressure was put to the women. Millions of Germans were fleeing west in fear of reprisals by Soviet Russia's Red Army. But they had no idea what to expect as the Americans, British and Canadians arrived. All these Allied soldiers had to sleep somewhere. Germans were thrown out of the houses. There was also crimes being conducted by Allied troops. We know this very well from the soldiers of the Water Army, but we also know, due to historical studies, these sort of crimes. Rape, for example, was also conducted by Americans, Canadians and British. The military government was very hard when they saw that this was conducted by the Western troops. I don't know whether the Soviets reacted in the same way. In the immediate aftermath of the war, Germans had to face the awful realisation that millions had been killed in Nazi death camps. When the Allied forced the German population to see what has happened inside the concentration camps, this was a really great shock for them. They knew something was going on. They saw the people with the Jewish star, with the yellow star, but they didn't expect that amount of crime in the months that followed, German life did slowly improve, says Captain Jörg Hillmann. Volkswagen was among firms relaunched by the British as the Allies revived German industry. These companies gave jobs to the people. They brought back normal life. They brought back something like a little bit of money and economy to Germany. 
75 years after VE Day, only the German capital, Berlin, will have a public holiday. All over the country, it's expected to be a day of national reflection. That was Rob Olver reporting. Well, the cancellation of public VE Day events means remaining veterans of the war will have to mark the anniversary at home. But many still have stories to tell. Paul Osborne's been listening to some of them. George Bradford was only a teenager when the war ended, an evacuee caught in the middle of a nationwide celebration. I was 14 years old. We went to school in the morning and at assembly we were told that we were going home at lunchtime. I think that it was at three o'clock Winston Churchill uh, spoke to the nation and said that the war would literally end uh, I think at midnight. Just about every door in the street opened, everyone went out and they were all hugging each other. Sound was the thing. All you heard was all the churches down uh, Lincoln uh, High Street. He would go on to join the Royal Marines. Jim Healy was a Marine during the war and was in India when news came through of Germany's surrender. I was on board ship on our way to the Far East. We got the announcement over the ship Tannoy that uh, the Germans had surrendered. We were very excited, but uh, I couldn't very well uh, do much more. I, I couldn't do cartwheels down the... In Canada, meanwhile, John Roberts was training to be a pilot. It was like London, really. Everybody came out and were celebrating. Uh, and uh, the fire brigade all came out in on their fire engines and drove up and down the, uh, the city. And I think one stopped not far from where I was, so I climbed on it. Well, I have to confess it, in those days I drank a lot, a lot more than I do nowadays. But there was still a job to do. Obviously, I was pleased. Um, because I knew people who were fighting in Europe. But uh, as far as I was concerned, I was learning to fly, to be on an aircraft carrier in the Pacific, fighting the Japanese. And the Japanese had a reputation for not being very nice. The war in Europe, obviously, was very successful and we were very grateful and very proud. It was only half time then. A few days later on, we were on our way to one of our future uh, Londons. For Marjorie Lamb, a cipher officer in the Royal Navy, work would continue in North Africa, but there was still time for a celebration. The Navy's better at a party than anything you can ever imagine. <laughs> I was still out there when the war ended. I was in the Middle East, and so we still had work to do. And after all, not everything was at peace immediately. It went on for ages. The cipher officers were kept on to finish, finish the job. That was Marjorie Lamb ending that report from Paul Osborne. Christopher Lee, um, as we heard there, it went on for ages and ages, as Marjorie Lamb said. They had to finish the job. The job had to be finished, yes, almost immediately. We have two minutes past midnight on the 8th of May. It's officially VE Day. Uh, the next day, the Red Army moved into Prague and thus began the splitting up of Europe. In June, uh, the Allies split Germany uh, into what we understood to be sort of Eastern Europe, Eastern Germany, really until the 1990s. Uh, then we demobbed. And then something happened on July the 16th, and that's the Americans tested, did the first test of a nuclear weapon. The facility of that nuclear weapon was sent across to the Far East, August the 6th, Enola Gay, which was the name of the aircraft, the B-29, dropped Little Boy, the bomb, on Hiroshima. 
And that was really the job. There was one small event, though, uh, after that. Uh, Cecil Harcourt, who was a rear admiral, he arrived in Hong Kong to get Hong Kong back. Uh, and then just about the same time, a bunch of guys were meeting in Southeast Asia, the beginnings of the next war, the Vietnam War. And so the idea, the talks about what should be done about the splitting up of post-war world was already beginning to what would become one of the most silly wars that we would take part again and uh, take part in after, uh, after the Second World War. Quite a, quite a sobering thought, isn't it? Now, a lot of people have, have drawn parallels between the Second World War and the current crisis, rightly or wrongly. And of course, this weekend, we're marking a moment of victory. Yes, well, it's, it's quite different, isn't it? You see, Second World War, we had heroes, didn't we? We had famous battles, uh, Arnhem, things we turned into being famous, like Dunkirk, which we still have, have celebrations for. But we had victories with people at them and famous occasions. Today, there are no sign of heroes. There are no medals. We're all on the same side, and we've only got one enemy, and it's fighting a lot of us. Christopher, and we heard you singing last week. Um, how are you going to be marking VE Day? I was singing, uh, we'll meet again. Not, not again, uh, not again. Not again, not again, not again. <laughs> I know it upset you for a whole week, didn't it? But the point is, that was Vera Lynn, and there's a lovely portrait being unveiled today in Eastbourne of Vera Lynn, who is still around 100 plus. And that's the sort of thing we're talking about. What do you remember? Where are your heroes? And there was the heroine of the Second World War, still there. We'll meet again. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> That is it for this week. Thank you, Christopher. <laughs> Thank you, Christopher. And thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can keep in touch on Twitter at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com slash SITREP. You can listen back to past episodes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. I'm Kate Chabot. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.